0: Welcome to the Urantia Radio Podcast. It's good to have you here, and it's uh, it's uh, refreshing to be back. I hope you've been enjoying the, uh, well, the, the early dawn of spring as we head into the new year, and uh, no doubt so much to deal with and contend with. And so thank you to those who have been uh, sending me emails, letting me know that they're there and listening and enjoying the podcast and the website, and I've been doing a lot of work. Shameless plug, but I've been doing a lot of work on the urantiaradio.net website, and I hope that you will uh, take an opportunity. I've reformatted it to make it easier on the eyes when you're either on your mobile device or if you're looking at it on the internet, on your laptop or your tablet. And it's always got information uh, about science, what's going on in the Urantia community around the world as well as some articles, essays, things that I picked up from the news that I think that are sort of part of the modern experience as viewed through the eyes of a Urantia book reader. And so that's why we're here. We're here to uh, commensurate and share the Revelation together. I've been doing some great reading on Larry Mullen's History of the Urantia Papers, and I don't know if you've had an opportunity ever to read uh, that, but if you you Have time, I would encourage you to go to Amazon or uh, perhaps even any online bookstore, Kindle, and download the book uh, and read it. Uh, Particularly, it's interesting to read about the transition that William Sadler made because, up until a certain point, he really just didn't believe that the Urantia papers were anything other than some sort of contrivance. Like there was something that could explain. Who was producing these papers? And of course he threw in his intellectual towel, as it were, because he realized that the, the depth of the papers themselves gave testimony to just how credible they were. Authentic, I guess, is even a better word. And that's what happens with people, is that they eventually, if they if they give the book a little bit of time and they start reading it, Uh, There's just something magical that happens. Because what happens is you, the truth starts to jump out at you. And you start to, uh, it starts to change your way of thinking. You'll walk around for a few days thinking about a particular passage that you ran across. And, And so... It happened to me. It happens to everybody that I know that reads the book. In fact, I want to add a a menu item to my website, UrantiaRadio.net, and have it just be testimonials from people. And it's called How I Met the Urantia Book. How did you meet the Urantia Book? How did the Urantia Book come into your life? Because it's a significant moment that people have when they first come into contact with or they first start to embrace... The Urantia book as a real revelation. We all love to tell our stories, don't we? I know my story is fairly simple. Ran into somebody. We were talking about Adam and Eve one night at work. Uh, he turned me on to the book. I read a few pages of the Urantia book on Adam and Eve. It's my favorite still. One of my favorite sections. And uh, I went out the next day and I found it. It was on a bookshelf and there were plenty of them. There was a whole sea of these Urantia books, and they were expensive too, 22 bucks, 22 bucks in 1983. That's probably like 60 bucks today. Anyway, so Meredith Sprunger, one of the early pioneers uh, of the Urantia movement, if you will, Uh, he was a pastor from South Bend, Indiana, I think. Uh, Anyway, he, uh, he went to Sadler's office and he said, well, what convinced you that the Urantia book was an authentic revelation at what point did you throw in the intellectual towel and Sadler said well I'm a psychiatrist I mean I'm I'm I made my wealth I made my I established myself by understanding human beings and I remember that Sadler uh, actually trained I believe with Carl Jung for a period in Europe during his early training anyway and so he says look I know human nature and I know how how to interpret human nature, and when I read the pages on the apostles, and, and when they, when I really had a chance to read them, and this he's referring to paper one thirty nine, in the Urantia Book, uh, and he says I, I had to just confess that there there was no way to explain how anybody could know this much about human beings. There's just no way, and the whoever wrote this knew exactly what was in the hearts and minds of these people. To uh, Nobody today could write that eloquently in explaining the human nature of these 12 individuals. Nobody. And that is, by the way, a, a challenge for you. If you have not read paper, even if you're a, you know, someone who doesn't know anything about this book and you happen to be listening to it, I challenge you to just start with paper 139 in the Arantia book. And if you're any, if you have any kind of basic Christian teaching, exposure, experience from being young, if you were anywhere near a Judeo-Christian family, <laughs> uh, you'll know that this book just shouts out authenticity. It screams credibility. So just as an example, I'm just going to read one paper and, uh, and then uh, see if you agree with me. And this is, uh, you know, it's kind of challenging. I mean, I think I want to read... I'm kind of tempted to read the one on Judas Iscariot, uh, because he's obviously the besides Peter the well most well known. Uh, and by the way, every one of these apostles I found had some appeal to me, some more than others. And I wonder if you feel the same way. So let's find one that we want to read. Well, I'll read Judas Judas Iscariot because everybody knows him. He's the one that betrayed Jesus. He's the one that went and sold him for thirty pieces of silver, so let's let's read that one, okay? This is from paper one thirty nine, and this is section twelve, and this is uh, I guess, it'd be paper thirty nine, paragraph twelve, section one, and we'll just continue on. Judas Iscariot, the twelfth apostle, was chosen by Nathaniel. He was born in Kiriath, the small town in southern Judea. When he was a lad, the parents moved to Jericho where he lived and had been employed in his father's various business enterprises until he became interested in the preaching and the work of John the Baptist. Judah's parents were Sadducees, Sadducees. And when their son joined John's apostles, they disowned him. He said, you're on your own. When Nathanael met Judas at Terachia or Tarachia. He was seeking employment with a fish-drying enterprise at the lower end of the Sea of Galilee. He was thirty years of age and unmarried when he joined the apostles. He was probably the best educated man among the twelve and the only Judean in the master's apostolic family. Judas had no outstanding trait of personal strength, though he had many outwardly appearing traits of culture and habits of training. He was a good thinker, but not always a truly honest thinker. Judas did not really understand himself. He was not really sincere in dealing with himself. Andrew appointed, this is you know in reference to Sadler, just knowing that little personality trait about somebody is, is pretty insightful. Wouldn't you agree? Judas did not really understand himself. He was not really sincere in dealing with himself. Who, who would have access to, to that kind of information? You would ask yourself, right? Going on, so now, 139, paragraph 12. Andrew appointed Judas treasurer of the twelve, a position which he held eminently fitted to hold. And up to the time of the betrayal of the master, he discharged the responsibilities of his office honestly, faithfully, and most efficiently. There was no special trait about Jesus, which uh, Judas admired above the generality attractive or the generally attractive and exquisitely charming personality of the Master. Judas was never able to rise above his Judean prejudices against his Galilean associates. He would even criticize in his mind many things about Jesus. Him whom eleven of the apostles looked upon as the perfect man, as the, quote, one altogether lovely and the chiefest among ten thousand, end quote, this self-satisfied Judean often dared to criticize in his own heart. He really entertained the notion that Jesus was timid and somewhat afraid to assert his own power and authority. Judas was a good businessman. It required tact, ability, and patience, as well as painstaking devotion to manage the financial affairs of such an idealist as Jesus. To say nothing of wrestling with the helter-skelter business methods of some of his apostles, Judas really was a great executive a far-seeing and able financier. And he was a stickler to organization. None of the twelve even criticized Judas. As far as they could see, Judas Iscariot was a matchless treasurer, a learned man, a loyal, though sometimes critical, apostle, and in every sense of the word, a great success. The apostles loved Judas. He really was one of them. He must have believed in Jesus, but we doubt whether he truly loved the Master with a whole heart. The case of Judas illustrates the truthfulness of that saying, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. It is altogether possible to fall victim to the peaceful deception of pleasant adjustment to the paths of sin and death. Be assured that Judas was always financially loyal to his master and his apostles. Money could never have been the motive for the betrayal of the master. Judas was only, or he was the only son of unwise parents. When very young, he was pampered and petted. He was a spoiled child. As he grew up, he had exaggerated ideas about his self-importance. He was a poor loser. He had loose and distorted ideas about fairness. He was given to the indulgence of hate and suspicion. He was an expert of misinterpretation of the words and acts of his friends. All through his life, Judas had cultivated the habit of getting even with those whom he fancied had mistreated him. His sense of values and loyalties were defective. To Jesus, Judas was a faith adventure. From the beginning, the master fully understood the weakness of his apostles and well knew the dangers of admitting to fellowship. But it is the nature of the sons of God to give every created being a full and equal chance for salvation and survival. Jesus wanted not only the mortals of his world or of this world, but the onlookers of innumerable other worlds to know that when doubt exists as to the sincerity and wholeheartedness of a creature's devotion to the kingdom, it is invariable. It is the invariable practice of the judges of men to fully receive the doubtful candidate. The doors of eternal life is wide open to all. Quote, whoever whosoever will may come, end quote. There are no restrictions or qualifications save the faith of the one who comes. And so I'm going to end it at that, I think, good drop-off moment because there's just a little bit more, but I think you get the sense and the quality and the tone of, of what Sadler had said caused him to throw in the intellectual towel as to trying to understand the methodology of how the book came to be and instead focus on the credibility and authenticity of what the Urantia book has to say and that is an appropriate way to leave it this time and I thank you again for joining me I did want to share some of that because it's always interesting to learn about new people in the Urantia papers and until next time don't forget to uh, email me your how I met the Urantia book Uh, make it short make it long but send it to Urantia book radio at Gmail. Your antiobookradio at gmail.com. Until next time, God bless.